You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday, beautiful country, July 27th, coast to coast to coast. I'm Evan Solomon. You are the greatest people in the world. Here we are in Canada. We have a great show for you. As we are broadcasting, the Parliamentary Committee is grilling the CEO and COO of Hockey Canada right now. Scott Smith is being grilled. And I'm going to give you the headline and some perspective on it. And then we have a guest that you need to hear. First, the number. $7.6 million. $7.6 million. What is that number? That is nine settlements, nine settlements that Hockey Canada has made that you've never known about, that if you've ever had a kid in hockey or you've been in hockey that your fees have paid for to settle sexual assault allegations using that national equity fund that you didn't know was paid for sexual assault allegations since 1989. Nine settlements. $6.8 million connected to the infamous molester coach. I use that term in quotation marks because he's everything but a coach. Graham James. Yesterday on the program, Greg Gilhooley, who was abused by Graham James, joined us. Graham James sexually abused Greg. Greg went on to become a lawyer. Greg was a great hockey player. He wrote a book called I Am Nobody about Graham James. So part of that $6.8 million is to compensate victims. I understand that. But there's also, get this, 12 uninsured, uninsured settlement claims. One perpetrator allegedly connected to four claims accounting for a million dollars. Then there's $300,000 somewhere else. So you got one perpetrator with four claims that was paid out, uninsured, a million bucks. Who was it? You don't know. When did it happen? We don't know. This is the money that young Canadian families struggling to say, I need to play hockey. I need to, I, I, this is an important part of our culture. This is an important part of exercise. I want to join. I love hockey. I want to be part of this. I'm going to join. And you pay your exorbitant fees. And Hockey Canada is quietly funneling off money and settling. Here's a million dollars to some perpetrator with four allegations. You don't even know about it. I don't know. I coached for a decade. My friends coached. My kids played. I didn't know about this. Did you? Let me just play you. Just so you haven't just heard it from me. This is only after media reports. Rick Westhead from TSN, who broke this, doing great work. Who's there in the courtroom today. Only because the media exposed the story. And then politicians said, we got to get to the bottom of this. And the government froze the fun. Now we'll get to the government. They should have known too. But I just want you, this is the chief financial officer, Brian Cairo, 
admitting finally the, the, the scope of this mess. Out of the National Equity Fund, nine settlement payments have been made, totaling $7.6 million. 6.8 of that is Graham James related incidents. The National Equity Fund that was not supposed to be for this, so they paid $7.6 million. $6.8 million to the James, Graham James issue. But there's more. Here's Cairo. And uninsured settled claims are 12 in nature for a total of $1.3 million. One perpetrator has created four of those incidents and accounts for $1 million of those. Is it... This is shocking. Now, they've, they've been told they should resign after Sheldon Kennedy, who was abused by Graham James, the great Sheldon Kennedy, who has done more to raise awareness about this issue than anybody in the country, who rollerbladed across Canada to raise awareness about this, who has been dealing with this himself for years and will join us on this program. I connected with Sheldon this morning. And Sheldon's going to be here because nobody speaks more passionately and has done more on this issue than Sheldon Kennedy, who will be on the show today. Maybe Greg Gilhooley, the lawyer who was also abused by Graham James when he was a young hockey player, all, who was on our show yesterday. And, and Sheldon yesterday tweets out, the sa- I can, enough is enough. The same people with a new plan expecting different results is the definition of insanity. I call for the resignation of Hockey Canada CEO Scott Smith of his leadership team and the board of directors to resign, step down from their positions immediately. Enough is enough. Well, Scott Smith was asked about this this morning, and he said, no, I will not step down. I'm really sorry that we should have acted earlier in 2018 when the allegations about the junior team. I didn't even know about what happened in 2003, the allegations on that team. What else don't you know? Well, I'll tell you what you do know. You do know that you had $7.6 million in an equity fund that was supposed to be used to help kids learn hockey, play hockey, develop hockey, and instead you're paying off silencing allegations of sexual abuse. Now, I like the fact that the victims of Graham James were compensated. They should be. But Hockey Canada has not been transparent. They've hidden this stuff. They've not been open and honest and transparent. How does anybody who's been in any sport, who's paid those fees, can look at this leadership now and say, well, you blew it for years. You blew it. You've admitted it. You've apologized. You didn't tell the truth. You didn't tell us where the money was going. You ignored these pleas. But yeah, we'll give you a second shot. You know who doesn't get a second shot? The victim. They live with it. This is a lesson from hockey. Stand up and take responsibility. The leadership of Hockey Canada, do you trust them? Are these the very people that can fix the situation, the very people that broke it? I'll tell you in hockey, when the team's losing, you fire the coach. This is significantly worse than a losing streak. This is not trying to motivate the team. This is the safety of young kids. My kids. And your kids. And you. And kids all over the place.
who just want to play hockey. And then when you get to the junior leagues, the elite, 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 that are some of them, and I'm not going to paint a large brush on all of these young kids because they're phenomenal athletes and they work hard. But if there's an allegation of sexual abuse, you've got to pursue it. And you've got to be open about it. And the head of Hockey Canada is not doing that. We're going to hear from Sheldon Kennedy later in the program. But I just want you to remember, there are $7.6 million in nine settlements since 1989 that was paid out of a fund that was not meant for this. Now, I know most of it went to the uh, victims of the abuser, Graham James, but there's another million that went to some mysterious perpetrator victims. Who, Who was it? Why was that hushed up? And when they say they take these situations very seriously, do they? Do you believe that? Our goal is to eliminate people being victimized in hockey. Really? It is now. Now that you're out in the open, now that you're getting called out, now that the victims are stepping forward, now that Rick Westhead from TSN busted the story, now that parliamentarians, and, and you know what it really is? Now that the government has choked off your money supply. So Sheldon's going to join us. I'm going to take a break and switch gears for a minute because Russia has decided to pull out of the space station. And Chris Hadfield, the great astronaut who was the international commander on the space station, is going to join us. Is this a space war coming up? Chris Hadfield next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's been one of the, in some ways, the the coolest political oases. As the world is divided here on Earth, out in space, nations get along. There's like a zero-gravity detente. Throughout the Cold War, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, Georgia, the snatching of Crimea, all that, Russia worked happily alongside the other members, as they have for more than 22 years, when the space station was put into orbit back in 1998, doing science and working together. But now Russia's basically saying, yeah, that's coming to an end. We can't get along in space either, and we're going to quit the International Space Station in 2024, and we're going to build our own. And someone that knows about this better than anybody is the former commander of the International Space Station. He's a young man. I think he's going to do well in the world. I think he's just, uh, you may have heard of him. He's maybe just the most famous Canadian in the world. His name is Chris Hadfield, the great Canadian astronaut. Commander Hadfield, how are you, my friend? Evan, it is great to be talking with you again. I'm doing fine. I trust you're having a good summer. You know, you and I, usually we have a guitar jam session around Canada Day. I don't understand what's going on. You sort of ditched me after my, was it, Was I that bad when we played guitar together that you were like, it's over? My band has a big concert down in South Texas next week. You're, you're welcome to come and join us, if you like, on the 6th of August. <laughs> I don't want to lower your standards, Chris. Um, <laughs> what was, Chris, uh, 
What did you make of Russia's announcement to quit the International Space Station after 2024? Um, it's bombast and noise and posturing and uh, and just uh, giving them a greater negotiating bar by saying something outrageous that everybody has to respond to. Um, the new guy, uh, his name is uh, Yuri Borisov. Uh, he, he's been in the job 10 days. And uh, he gave a briefing yesterday to uh, to Putin um, and, and in it, he said, after 2024, we're going to leave the space station. We're going to build our own space station. And I mean, the reality is, uh, I mean, everybody is going to leave the space station at some point after 2024. I mean, that's not a date at all. That's just sometime in the future. You know, the space station will be finished. And and so. I mean, there's so many things that that punch holes in him making that statement. But it, it does. I mean, obviously, it got the world's attention and gives them a better chance to negotiate, you know, how they want to move forward internationally with all the other partners on the space station. Um, and, and, you know, there's always been tension and every nation's got their own agenda. I mean, President Trump, he also said something exactly like that while he was president. We're going to pull out of the space station after 2024 and, you know, do other stuff. But um, but just because you say something bombastic doesn't make it the truth. And, and that's that's what was going on yesterday. Speaking of Chris Hadfield, the, the, the astronaut and the former commander of the International Space Station, take us up there. Like when there's earthly tensions here on Earth and you're up there, is there a is there a written rule or an unwritten rule? Chris Hadfield, don't talk politics. Let's not talk Crimea. Let's not talk Ukraine. Let's not talk Afghanistan. Let's not talk Iraq. Let's not talk X or Y. Like does it get political up there? We're just a bunch of people up there, Evan. I mean, extremely highly trained and carefully selected. And a bunch of people who've got a vast amount of experience and competence and, and therefore confidence in what they're doing. But, you know, not a bunch of idiots up there. And I think one of the, one of the differences perhaps is um, we're not assaulted by uh, the, the screaming daily headlines uh, of all the various you know, networks vying for attention. We're actually seeing the entire world in truth for, for what it truly is 16 times a day. You go around, you see all almost 8 billion people every day. And that tends to put the hotspots, the places where there's uh, friction, whether it's as serious as the loss of life that's going on in Ukraine or, or just spats, uh, it puts it all into perspective. And and so obviously we don't ignore it, but, but but the reality is we're a very small group of people running hundreds of experiments on behalf of everybody, um, counting on each other with our lives. And the politics and the noises and the political uh, posturing, those all come and go on a regular basis. Um, we, are, we have a job to do up there. And, that, and that's what we pay attention to. Mm. Speaking of Chris Hadfield, it's fascinating. You have to work very closely with the Russians, don't you? I was NASA's director of operations in Russia for several years. I, I was the pilot of a Russian spaceship. I mean, I piloted a Soyuz. I speak Russian. I lived in Russia for five years. Um, and, and, uh, and I talked to the people on the space station this week. In fact, I was emailing back and forth with the space stations. Yeah, so so I, I have uh, you know yeah you have depth, some you have a little knowledge of the, the Russian perspective, but I mean you do. So what do they say when this happens? These tensions, like what do you when you're back channeling or saying like because I've always looked to your space program as a place of hope where we can get over these things and 
and and and and and kind of learn to live together. You know Russia. You know the people. You know the scientists there. What's what's the what's their sense of all this? I think it's easy from from the the comfort and safety of Canada to look at Russia as some sort of monolith, as if it is one thing. You know, a, a giant uh, bear on the horizon that you know we should we should be afraid of or scared of or um, or treat as just a, a single entity. But it's not. You know, it's I don't know what the population, 190 million people or something. They're all different and they all have different objectives. Some of them support what the current government is doing and a lot of them do not support what the government's doing. And some people have a very short uh, view of history and some have a longer one. And, and so, you know, I really feel... Greatly for obviously the people in Ukraine who are who are dying and and take bearing the brunt of this, but also the people of Russia, the, the financial impact of this is going to affect them for a generation. It, it is uh, the the economic uh, problems that are coming along with and all the ways that the other nations are applying leverage. It's going to have an enormous impact on the on the rank and file Russian people for a long time. That's that's the reality of it. And just because the current regime is doing horrific things doesn't mean there's any sort of unanimity of the people or of the crew on the space station. That's the right thing to be happening. So, you know, we we we're not in a position to to affect that part of history from the spaceship. We need to do our part right. When something bad happens on Earth, um, we we. We can talk about it. We console each other. We commiserate together. One of my crewmates, his mother died while we were on the space station. And so how as a small group of people do you deal with that? Or when your nation is doing something that you personally disagree with or, or whatever, you know, we just have to try and find um, uh, the right path forward for, the, for our group to uh, what we're doing up there and, and try and make sure that we're not of the problem. I'm speaking to Chris Hadfield, and Chris, I know i got to take a break in about a minute and a half, and, and you're going to stay with me, but I wonder if space is at a turning point, that you've got Elon Musk, they're flying NASA astronauts, uh, you know, you're no longer needing to, to launch astronauts from Kazakhstan or any Russian territory, the Americans are back in the game, the Chinese are in the game, they want to build a space station, um, it almost seems like this is a, is it the privatization of space, is it... The, is there a space war? Like, is is this a turning point in the space race? Yeah, and what's driving that turning point, Evan, you're right, is it is because of a rapid advance of technology where you used to have to be a trillionaire to fly in space. You had you used to have to be the Soviet Union or the United States. Nobody else could beat the technical challenge of it uh, at any sort of economic cost. What has changed is the technology has gotten radically better and, and simpler and safer and therefore much, much cheaper. And, that, and we can talk about it here after the break, but that is opening up a whole bunch of new opportunities. Some of them, as you mentioned, uh, geopolitical, but a lot of them just straight and, and opportunity to, yeah. you know, for betterment of life on Earth. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's worth talking about. Okay, so let's take a break. Chris Hadfield, Canadian astronaut, former commander of the International Space Station. Russia says they're going to pull out after 2024. Yeah, that's a lot of bluster. Everyone's going to eventually leave after 2024. It's a matter of when, as Chris Hadfield just said. But is this a turning point in space? What are the threats and what are the opportunities? Uh, Chris Hadfield's going to outline it next. I love this. Uh, an astronaut with us for another 15 
Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So Russia decides to install a, uh, a new chief to their space program, Yuri Borisov, and he comes out and he says, yeah, we're, we're quitting the International Space Station after 2024, and the world pays attention. Is this uh, the Cold War extending up into space and the cooperation's ending? Now, everyone's going to leave the space station eventually, but is this a turning point? Now, nobody knows this issue better than Chris Hadfield. You know him. He's an author. He's an astronaut, and he's the former commander of the International Space Station. He speaks Russian. He's lived in Russia. So, so this is about as core to his competency as anything in the world. And he joins us now. Chris, always a pleasure. Um, for a lot of folks, did Russia's announcement send, like, does this signify that the space community and the, and, and the International Space Station and what it symbolizes is at a crossroads? I don't think so. This is just more of the same from Russia. We've been hearing their noisy uh, chief of their space agency for for the last couple of years. The reality, Evan, is that uh, the Russians just put their biggest and most expensive and most capable piece, their their laboratory, their huge laboratory, the size of a city bus and with a big arm on the outside. They put it on the space station less than a year ago. And so they've just really gotten going. And, And the other thing is, the space station, the International Space Station, it is the crown jewel of the Russian space program. They don't have anything else. They, it's their version of the Hubble telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope. You know, that's all they got. And so for them to say, oh, we're going to leave the space station sometime after two years from now, oh, that's an easy thing to say. But all the intergovernmental agreements and the memorandum of understanding and all the rest of it, you know, it, it's just it, they're chess players. And this is a really good chess move you know it gets everybody to pay attention but but it's this is just you know noise and and the reality is what what are the actual actions that are going to be taken but But there is lots of change going on yeah what is going on chris because you know it just seems that space is changing as you said it's no longer just the purview of governments it's private companies the costs are going down um, it's geo, the geopolitics have changed to a commercial political element. There's opportunities and threats. What are the threats and what are the opportunities? The big opportunity is that it is suddenly radically cheaper to put things into orbit around the world. So that opens up because of the new, all the technology of the work of the last 60 years, as probably best evidenced by what SpaceX and Elon Musk's company is doing. If it is, if suddenly, let's say suddenly air travel was 25 times cheaper. So something that used to be uh, 250 bucks was now 10 bucks or 2,500 bucks is, you know, now, now hundred bucks. You know, a lot of people would change their travel habit. And, and so it opens up stuff like uh, not just global positioning system, but weather forecasting and uh, Starlink where you can get internet from space and understanding the world. We have hundreds of satellites, little ones, the size of a loaf of bread that are mapping the entire world every day, letting everybody see the state of the world, measuring the actual reality of our planet so we can make good decisions. All that, and occasionally some wealthy person goes for a ride, but you mm. know, that gets all the news, but that's just a tiny little piece of it. It's, it's space commerce, and that's been, or at least very difficult before, with anybody but the government as a customer. But now, because the cost is so much lower, Private businesses can be customers, and even right down to where an individual 
can be a customer and taking advantage of, of the cheap cost of transport. And so that's what's really changing. And, and you hear sort of ripples of it as something noteworthy happens, but it, it is shifting spaceflight mm. uh, dramatically, they, even taking us to the surface of the moon. Has that made the International Space Station uh, less relevant or more relevant? Uh, both. Um, it's more relevant because it's it's the only game in town. Uh, well, I mean, the Chinese have a space station that they occasionally send people to that no other nations are a part of. But they're, they're sort of about uh, 25 years behind in that. But they're Is that, What do you mean they're 25 years behind? What does that mean? Well, it's like the Mir space station in the 80s and, and, or, and 90s. You know, the, I helped build the Russian space station Mir in 1995. Right. And it was small, didn't have very much power. Um, and so it couldn't run too many experiments. But it led to all of the cooperation that allowed us to build the International Space Station huh. that then is, is, is the most uh, largest and most capable research platform and laboratory we've ever built uh, out in space and has been doing, I mean, everything from looking at the very structure of the universe itself to mapping and understanding our world like we've never understood it before. It's all the other, the 200 experiments going on on the station. So, so it is a, it, a unique capability, but uh, uh, naturally, as things get better, the, you know, not many people are driving an Edsel anymore or, right. or even a Model T. Model T was the best car in the world, but it got superseded by better technology. And, and so eventually, uh, the, the launches and the robotics and the uh, miniaturization of decision-making with microcircuitry will allow us to have un, unpeopled space stations uh, setting, doing stuff. If you can get there cheaply and your technology is good enough, you don't need a bunch of people on board to make it all work. So and crazy. So we'll go through that evolution. But it also opens up the moon. Bigger than Africa, untapped geological resource with no life, uh, 400 billion liters of water, uh, uninterrupted solar power, it's a really interesting destination for both science and for research and for wow. eventually business. And if you can get there cheap enough, then suddenly you can change your mind about, oh, well, okay, that's that's a whole new game. And that's what's going on right now. Um, well, that's, so, an expensive, yeah, so that's an expensive drink of water, but I know what you mean. Uh, I've got Chris Hadfield just for a couple more minutes. Can I get your reaction to the James Webb Space Telescope? The, the pictures coming back are, are so astounding. I just want to see it from your eyes, Chris, because you've been in space. Like the idea that we are the only ones in the universe just seems ridiculous now when you see the number of galaxies out there. You know, about 400 years ago, everybody had looked at the sky, but then Galileo built a little telescope or had it built. And for the very first time, looked at like Jupiter and saw moons around Jupiter. And the, the entire, everybody in the, in the educated European world at the time gasped, like, we are not the center of the universe. Stuff goes around other stuff. How can that possibly be? I mean, he was treated as a, as a religious heretic for it. Yeah, it for took sure. a huge society. It, it led a lot to, you know, sort of the, the revelation of society and awareness of our place in the universe. And that, to some degree is happening again with James Webb. We have never been able to look out and see what actually exists and have and then try and work it into our own thinking. We've already, using the Canadian sensors on board, seen the atmosphere of a planet going around a star that isn't ours. We can actually see what the atmosphere is made of, do an analysis of it. If we can find a planet that has carbon dioxide and methane in it, 
as as well as other gases, it's like, well, they probably have uh, our kind of life there. You know, they're they're on the cusp of seeing that type of stuff. And so James Webb is like, um, it's almost like this magic look into the rest of everything else. And it, and it's just the result of of so many people's work, including Canada. Everybody should be, uh, should be proud of that. Uh, Chris, before I let you go, Chris Hadfield, um, what's the go-to song right now? What is on the the Chris Hadfield playlist, the go-to song? Because I know you're playing a lot of music now. What's quickly on your – because I've got a – Samantha and I, we love to run, lots of uh, exercise. We're going to our go-to playlist. What's on the Hadfield playlist? Um, You know, one of my favorite artists is Brandi Carlisle, and uh, she has been touring with Joni Mitchell, who was a really formative voice for me growing up. And – Joni just went back. Both of them went back to one of the uh, Newport. I think it was maybe the Newport. It was festival. Newport. It was Newport. And, yeah. yeah. And that there, there's a, some of the songs. They did lots of songs on stage, but uh, that is to me, it's just magic. Brandy is such a great voice oh, and a great geez. force. And for her to, you know, obviously, uh, uh, life, life moves on for all of us. Um, but to get the two of them together oh, on amazing. stage. Joni Mitchell is, is such a legendary songwriter and performer and knows everybody. To me, that that is really... Oh, that was great. Yeah, they they did both sides yeah. now. Um, yeah. Uh, there was Joni. Oh. Um, Brandy, just, she's incredible. And I think it was the uh, Judge Sisters in the back. I don't know yeah. it was Ashley. And she, to, like, she was bawling her eyes out. To listen... Uh, li- oh, yeah, they, everybody was. To listen to Joni getting... Digging in the oh, and, and I know. singing, I, I could drink a case of you. To me, that was just, it was, it's magic. Chris Hadfield, you're magic. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. Um, lots to talk about today. We got the Hockey Canada issue. Uh, we talked to uh, just a young astronaut named Chris Hadfield. And we thought, like, okay, who could follow? He's been the commander of the International Space Station. He's a best-selling author. He's a speaker. He's an astronaut. Who is better? Like, who is more compelling? Who could follow Chris Hadfield and yet not be a letdown? yet actually be somebody that the listeners will say, I got to hear this. So we're thinking monkeypox, <laughs> and we're thinking Dr. Isaac Bogosh. So uh, so I don't know. I hope the warm-up act, I know that in your rider clause, you, you tell us, if I'm coming on your show, I need the purple M&Ms, and I need oh, yeah. a very good warm-up act. And so we tried with Chris Hadfield. Is that okay? Honest to God, you have Chris Hadfield on. Apparently you have Andre DeGrasse on next. Like, what yeah. is- do you really want to talk to me? Like, well, here's who we've got. Have... We've got Andre DeGrasse, who's just a gold that? medalist. We've got um, Sheldon Kennedy, who's... Oh, and then we've got Chris Hadfield. And then we're like, those three are good, for sure. Good, but they're not like Miss Dr. Monkeypox right now. And that's Dr. Bogart. Oh, my God. I, like... I'm you, sorry you, to so, so you everybody can't... listening that we have to talk about Monkeypox when you just had Chris Hadfield and you've got Andre DeGrasse, but... Hey, happy to play that role. It's okay. It's just tough act to follow. I'm going to tell you something funny. So, 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 just before we get to the monkeypox, I was, uh, uh, I don't know why. You know, I'm a big Muhammad Ali fan. I don't know if you are. I love Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. And and someone sent me this link to like a 1973 
or 76 show by Mike Douglas. Remember Mike Douglas? He had a, he was a huge American daytime, the Mike Douglas show. And it was like very seventies. And he always had a co-host and the co-host was the very outrageous Sly from Sly and the Family Stone who seemed kind of out of it. And then his special guest was Muhammad Ali. Now Ali does not get along with Sly. Like he's not, and, and he's very political. He's a genius, okay? And, and Ali's there. And then, oh my God, Mike Douglas and Muhammad Ali and Sly and the Family Stone. And then there was another guy on, and the other guy was the lead singer from Fiddler on the Roof, whose name I don't know. And I was like, Tradition. Yeah, yeah, it was that guy. And I was, and he was pretending to hang on. I'm like, dude, who are you? And I felt like, Okay, I'm going to watch you two, and I just want you to know that in this scenario, you are the Sly in the Family Stone, okay? You are Sly in this. You are not Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof in this <laughs> scenario. you're a rich man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guests. Okay, so I'm we not, got Dr. Yeah. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease physician at Toronto General Hospital. What is what is monkeypox? Why are the World Health Organization uh, worried about it? Like, give us uh, what do we do about it? Okay, something you can't ignore. Something that has to be taken seriously. Now, over eighteen thousand cases reported in over seventy-five countries globally. It's normally found in Central and West Africa, due to a bunch of reasons that we don't need to get into now. It's now increasingly common elsewhere in the world. Different countries have different capacities to get this under control. Canada, there's no excuse to not get this under control. Uh, It's going to grumble along for a while. Uh, We have vaccines. We have good public health program. We have uh, coordination between uh, federal, provincial, and municipal public health authorities really trying to stamp this out. It will grumble along for a while. But I think this is going to be a problem we're going to be talking about for years, not weeks. Uh, However, in Canada, currently... We should aim to eliminate this and then deal with an occasional imported case. Oh, is that right? So that's so, my opinion. Okay. I, I'm sure others agree with me on that. We should. It's going to take a while, but we should stamp this out. We have the ability to stamp this out. How do Canada. we stamp well, it out? Because I've heard, I, I, I a friend of mine, yeah. and um, uh, he was in the states. I was in the states vacationing, and he's gay. And he said, "I'm worried about." The monkeypox, because they say it uh, transmit from through male to male sexual relationships. And I want to come home to Canada and get a monkeypox vaccine. And so my question to you is, one, if it's a skin to skin transfer, why does it have anything to do with um, uh, same sex, uh, gay male sex? If that's the case, is it specific to that particular community? Or, and, and is there a vaccine? There's so many questions about this. People want to know. Right. So a couple of quick things. First of all, zero moralization, zero discrimination, and zero stigma, right? None. But currently, about 98% of cases are in the men who have sex with men community. We have to be honest and we have to be respectful. That's who it's impacting. And that's why the public health programs are so focused on, on, on the men who have sex with men community right now. And that's completely appropriate. But it's a transmissible infection. It's, there's nothing to say that it's going to stay within that particular community for long. And, of course, if you let this go unchecked, it's going to start impacting people outside that community. Uh, you'll see these public health programs, at least in Canada, bringing in the men who have sex with, with men community into the fold, help their actively involved, helping with the communication, helping with the rollout, helping with the vaccine strategy. And 
It's too early to say if it's working or not, but that's a smart approach. Focus your resources on those who are disproportionately impacted right now. Okay, but how do you do it now? So what are the resources? So, like, if you're in a community like that, or if you're in another community, can you get a monkeypox vaccine? Is there an age? What does it do? Is Is it effective? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, if you go into the Toronto Public Health website, uh, you can see there's clinics for vaccinations. And uh, I mean, many people don't see this because they're not the target audience. And that's why. Like, this is a very focused public health campaign, for example, in Toronto and Montreal and elsewhere in Canada. The, there's communications and advertisements and community engagement with the men who have sex with men community, which, of course, you know, and again, this I know I sound like a broken record, but it is so important. Zero moralization, zero stigma zero discrimination here it's just being honest and being respectful simultaneously and then and, and that's important um because this is where the mo- most cases are by far and and this is helpful for that particular community but it's also helpful for everyone in canada because you know, we obviously want fewer cases not more and, and th- there's nothing unique about monkeypox most people are susceptible to this this could affect anybody it just happens to be in the men who have sex with men community now. And, and again, uh, there might have been amplification during Pride Month where there's multiple close contacts with individuals and it's going to take some time to get this under control, but we still have the ability to get this. So, so should we anyone should in that community get a monkeypox shot right now? Is it available? Is there enough? Yeah. It, well, is it enough is a big question. It's currently available and you know, there's really good uh, criteria on, on, on the website that you can see who's eligible. For example, does everybody need one who's a man who has sex with men? No, but people who have multiple sexual partners, people who uh, have multiple close contacts uh, would, would certainly qualify and, and, and benefit from this uh, at this point in time. All right. And again, we're time stamping this to July of 2022. Okay. That's yeah. also an important point. Just I like agree. anything else, things change, things change. Maybe they need to expand the program a few months from now, but currently that is a, well-targeted, smart, and appropriate uh, public health campaign. Now, before you go, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, I uh, I just want to give you the scores. Now, you didn't know this, but like Richard Nixon, we're secretly keeping track of everything, and we're scoring you compared to Chris Hadfield. <laughs> so we just put oh up that, and the numbers are coming in, and it is a dead heat between Hadfield and Bogosh right now. I see. I'd vote for Hadfield. That guy's a hero. What a your post pretty amazing. Doctor Isaac Bogosh, thanks, buddy. You know, seriously, you're awesome. Uh, the war room's Take coming care. up next, folks. You're listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the second part of the big show. It is time to midsummer get inside the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Zane Valji, political campaign strategist, partner at Northweather, worked for Calgary Mayor Nad Nenshi, Rachel Notley. He is mellifluous and generous and loquacious, and he is with us. But so is the golden-throated medalark himself, the marathon-running, beer-swilling, generous man, Tim Powers, the chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, and joining us today... 
as our special guest is the effervescent David Mosscroft, the contributing columnist for the Washington Post, right here in the nation's capital, and he's only here for one reason, the weather. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, Rand. I'm glad you did call me. That was better than calling me dumb jock. So well well done. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. I would never call you a dumb jock. I didn't know you were a jock. Because I didn't know you were a jock. (laughs) (laughs) You'll you'll pay for that later. Uh, let's first of all welcome everyone. I hope everything's uh, let let's start with this, and I'm going to start with uh, our friend, the brilliant Tim Powers. Stephen Harper said this: Pierre Poiliev was a strong minister in my government. In the past several years, he's been our party's most vocal and effective critic of the Trudeau Liberals. He's been talking about the issues, especially the economic issues, that matter. Yes, yes, he has not done this. He didn't do this for Sheer or for O'Toole, but for all sorts of reasons, the, Stephen Harper is laying the virtual hands on Pierre Polyev to push him over the finish line as if he needed a push. Uh, what's the significance of this? What's behind it, Tim? Well, I have to laugh. A strong minister in our government for a half a second. Uh, Pierre didn't yeah. become a cabinet minister until the very end. <laughs> yeah. I have to, I'll also add this. Can you imagine, Evan, Zane, and David, if this had have happened to Harper in his 2004 leadership race with Belinda Strunk and Tony Clement, if Brian Mulroney or Preston Manning would have endorsed one of those candidates, he would have lost his poop. And he's long been an advocate of staying on the sidelines. So why has he come out? I think, I think honestly, the principal reason is he has some concern about what happens after September 10th. Those concerns are about legacy preservation, and a very key element of that is the future of the Conservative Party. And we'll all remember 2003-2004 when that agreement was done. Uh, One of the central items about the unification of the Conservative Party, and Stephen Harper took this to heart, was to make sure it remained a strong institution. Institutions are under challenge. Pierre Polyev, interestingly, is leading some of that challenge. So I think he's laid the hands on Polyev, sending a message that uh, that's where feels the protection of the institution will happen. Meanwhile, Leslie Lewis, John Charest, Scott Akins, and Roman Baber are picking up their chicklets off the sidewalk because what a kick of a teeth they've got. Yeah, oh yeah. I think, um, David, there's about 700 million reasons why Stephen Harper does not like Jean Charest going back to the $700 million that he gave Quebec in 2007 and uh, a, uh, a very... Um, Concerned, Jean Charest decided to give a $700 million tax break to Quebecers and squeak out a minority win. And then in the next 2008 election, he hammered Harper for cultural policies. And it's like, thank you. My name's Stephen Harper. I am a collector of slights. I have not forgotten. <laughs> no, he doesn't forget. He has a very long memory. To borrow a phrase about another prime minister used by a biographer, he haunts us still. <laughs> or, or, in fact, another line, he's lurking. Maybe a slightly more infamous line, he's lurking. But he is, um, and he certainly remembers this. And, of course, him and Jean Chéret are very different types of conservative. I mean, if you want to boil it down to a sort of simplest post-stamp iteration, uh, Harper is a, a sort of new Western conservative, slightly libertarian conservative, uh, you know, a social values conservative, and Jean Chéret is an old red Tory, and those factions have been at one another for, for some time. And Harper obviously hasn't given up on, on the party that he founded, but I don't know that I would either. If you played such a role in the resurgence of the party, I think I'd have a hard time letting go as well. 
even though he seems to be quite busy in his retirement from politics. Um, Zane, let me get, I'll, I'll go for you for a double. Uh, I thought Andrew Coyne, in his inimitable fashion, said, um, <laughs> he said, Stephen Harper, the winner of one majority in five tries, says Polyev has what it takes. It's like, wow, Coyne. Just, he goes for the kneecap. So what's your take? Well, batting 200 for that double, uh, one out of five. Listen, uh, my take is this. Who needs this more? Like, when you analyze this from the perspective of who needs this more, is it Pierre Polyev, who's a runaway train now, now that Patrick Brown is out, Jean Charest underperforming, is more than likely going to win this on the first ballot? Or is it Stephen Harper, to David's point, whose entire political legacy uh, is built on ensuring that the Conservative Party of Canada sticks together? If this thing does not stay together, if this thing disintegrates, if the factions on in the center leave, uh, if this is not a clear winner territory, uh, there is some not reputational risk, but there's some legacy harm for Stephen Harper on this. And so when you look at that, you combine that with what's already been said about long memories. And let's talk about the long memory he still probably has for his hatred of Justin Trudeau. To have someone that could fight Trudeau on the economy, fight Trudeau on a rhetorical level, he probably likes that quite a bit. And then the final thing I'd add in terms of how this benefits or why Harper may have done this, we talk about this all the time in politics, that politicians are addicted to, almost mm -hmm. trained by folks like, like Tim and I and others to say, if you find a parade that's bubbling up that looks like a short thing, get in front of it. And there is no reason to not get in front of it. Right. And I think there is something to be said about the old hat of Stephen Harper saying, this thing's a runaway train. I see it upside for me. I see it upside for my legacy. Let me jump in front of it. Maybe take some credit for why it got that well, first ballot victory that it will in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think I, I. Interesting. Tim, I, I'd weigh in on that. I, I think, look, Jenny Byrne. Uh, ran the Harper campaign. I know they lost in 2015. Very tight with Stephen Harper. Pierre Polyev. I, there, there is no uh, fruit that was from the um, more you know developed on, than 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 Polyev on the Harper tree. I just didn't think Harper had any other choice. Why he's weighing in now? I, I'm with you. He, he's got a. He senses there's big cracks here, and he's trying to hold together the coalition. Mm -hmm. Then I don't know if it does hold together. We'll see. Well, and what's equally interesting about this, look, I think Jenny and her team have done an excellent job. I'm not the biggest Pierre Polyev fan, shock, shock to no one who's listened to this segment, but they've, they've masterfully run this campaign, even with uh, some of the asinine things Polyev has said. They don't need it, but I do think two very quick points on this. One is I think they've watched previous campaigns where Maxime Bernier and Peter McKay faltered as front runners. They're not taking anything to chance. The Harper endorsement gives them that. They've also taken a really interested, calculated risk. They have brought back the ghost of Christmas past. Harper was almost expunged from the memory of Canadians. You remember the Liberals basically since 2004, whether he's running or not, have run campaigns against Stephen Harper. Pierre Polyev has set himself up to be son of Harper. And that mm. you think that that, that ad is going to pop up or that statement's going to pop up everywhere. Maybe it doesn't matter anymore. Maybe it won't matter in two or three years but it certainly has mattered in the past. David, last minute to you. It was certainly a response to Aaron O'Toole trotting out Brian Mulroney saying, this is not your father's conservative party. Now it's uh, Pierre Polyev saying, by the way, yeah, it is. David. Well, when, when O'Toole said that, I said, he's right. It's your grandfather's conservative party. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who brings out Brian Mulroney? No, this is the new kid on the block. Checks the notes. Brian Mulroney. 
I mean, in a couple of years, the guy might be on our money. He's been around for some time. But I, I do think that, that Stephen Harper and Pierre Polyev share a broadly similar politics. I think Pierre Polyev has taken it and, and turned it into a caricature. He's doing sort of Margaret Thatcher cosplay. Not that, that anyone asked for it, but I think that's what he's doing. But if you're Stephen Harper and you look and say, okay, well, it's either him or, or back to Mulroney, where do you go? The question will be what a Canadian say to that. And, and it's hard to say because we don't know what the state of the country will be if we, if we last to 2025 before the next election. But they might well say, no, no, we're, we're quite happy with the social programs we have. And we think actually we yeah. need government, more government, because look what just happened. My God, and government had my back to some extent. So I think the, the ultimate question will be, can, you know, can Polly have sell that to Canadians? And I'm not convinced. Uh, David Tim Zane, hang on. Part two. I want to dig into what is going on in Alberta with Danielle Smith. Zane, get ready. You're up next. If they said it, we'll call them on it. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Coming up on the uh, big show, the uh, gold medalist, Andre DeGrasse, the uh, Olympic medalist, the 11-time world champion. Andre DeGrasse will join us. Now, that is a jock. I mean, I know Tim Powers here thinks he's the big jock here. I know. That. I'm just saying well, that we do have Andre DeGrasse coming up next. I, I, I have to say, I did see Tim on camera yesterday for the first time yeah. in a long time. And he's got a black eye. He's got a black eye, which to me is very jock-like. Now, I'm not yep. saying it is jock. It is jock-like and jock-light. But, uh, you know, he okay. has some Thanks, credit. Well, in, hold in on. Let, let me do this. Uh, Tim Powers is here, chairman of Suma Strategies. Zane Velji, political strategist. And David Moskov, the contributing columnist for The Washington Post in Ottawa. Uh, okay, now that I've introduced you, Tim, can you update <laughs> us on what's going on your... I mean, obviously, and and by the way, if the story of your black eye is bad, make it up. Just make something really good. It's it's classic, actually. It wasn't as good as the one I once had on Question Period where my eye was shut and Roger Kuzner called me a cyclops. No, not that good. But I was at at a regional water park that will remain nameless. It was very crowded with my young son, who you know, Evan Patrick. And the waves were very high, and he was about to swallow a lot of waves. And I took him, and as I took him... A gentleman came over the top and mistakenly elbowed me square in the wow. eye. So I wow. call it the water park Whoa. injury, the weakest wow. black eye I've ever had. You know, there was a time when Tim's nighttime stories would he sort of roll in with like a black eye and they'd be actually, you, they'd be like, oh, let's take a Lou Reed walk on the wild side. Now they're just like this, which is my kind of story. Uh, Zane Velge, I'm going to play you. Uh, speaking of the wild side, uh, let's, let's segue into Alberta politics. My God. Danielle Smith. Um, whose journey towards relevancy has is, is, is been a circuitous one, from radio host and business advocate, then she was the head of the Wild Rose Party, then she crossed the floor and betrayed them with, eight, I think it was eight others, joined Jim Prentice, then lost her seat, then was in the political wilderness, then is a, is a longtime peddler of various crazy conspiracy theories medically. Most recently, she's talking about stage four cancer, which she knows absolutely nothing about, but here she is talking about cancer and telling people without her medical degree how to deal with stage one, two, and three of cancer. Absolutely. Once you've arrived and got stage four cancer and there's 
radiation and surgery and chemotherapy. That's an incredibly expensive intervention, not just for the system, but also expensive in the toll it takes on the body. But when you think about everything that built up before you got Mm -hmm. to stage four in that diagnosis, that's completely within your control. And there's something that you can do about that that is different. Mm, Thanks, Dr. Smith. I know know you're a doctor. I I didn't know that. Because I didn't realize if you have a talk radio show like mine, you also get an instant medical degree so you can wax philosophic about pediatric cancers of which you know nothing about. Zane, what what is the story? And, and, and apparently she's going to be the next premier. Well, the story is this, you know, you, you did a great job kind of outlining all the elements of her political bio. There is one that I want to double down on, which is a decade ago in this province, we almost handed her the keys to be our next premier. Uh, she was mainly like a week away from becoming premier until Alison Redford snatched that victory again because the wild rose looked too extreme. And I think the conclusion then... That was the was lake of fire incident, right? One of her candidates that, exactly. said that gay people will burn Absolutely. in a lake of fire, which she said, I, I don't think I'm going to remove him. So that was the the uh, take note Daniel political, Smith, political uh, watchers. Smith, lakes of fire are bad. Absolutely. And Danielle Smith almost, you know, left that party, not almost, left that party because she said the wild rose is too extreme for me. Well, she's back a decade later, now defining the outer fringes of conservatism in Alberta. And I think one of the biggest misunderstandings about conservatism in this place is that we are ideologically conservative when in fact we're actually tribally conservative. And what she's Mm -hmm. doing is she's saying, and it's the same problem that Pierre may have, is that the pathway to win the leadership is not the pathway to win the province. And she is saying that's tomorrow's problem. I'm going to double down on ideological conservatism. It's a one member, one vote system, this leadership race. So there's no points. She doesn't care. I can disproportionately reach the people who feel like their voice is not being heard, who have these beliefs, who may look at this, which is a gaffe, a clear gaffe, a mistake, and not penalize her for it, lets her double down on it. And she's one of those folks that says, it's tomorrow's problem, how I win over the province. My job right now is to be the defining anger, uh, the rural voice, the, the fringe populist voice to incubate all these votes, all these supporters that I can. And for whatever purpose, it is working. You're seeing the crowds. You're seeing her chief competitor and Brian Jean, who may share that same audience, just kind of tanking. Uh, so it's going to be very fascinating to see, Evan, because I think one of two scenarios happens. Daniel Smith wins on the first ballot because all that Brian Jean support goes to her. Or Brian Jean's relative weakness means that she has to go to two or three ballots. And then we might see one of the more moderate or centrist candidates emerge. But as it relates to the dominant headlines, it's all Daniel Smith all the time here in Alberta, which I would not have predicted six weeks ago. David, there's a bigger issue here. Uh, maybe you could, you know, as we watch certain you know, politics radicalize uh, on the right side, and, and I, I focus on it because we've got a, a federal conservative leadership race, and now we've got the race in Alberta as well, uh, and by the way, in the UK as well. But when did, look, I understand anger, I understand populism, I understand that, but when did it become detethered from reality? where there was no fidelity towards facts or something. You could say whatever you want. This, if it doesn't, you know, if our federation doesn't work, we'll just change it. It's as if there's no uh, fidelity to reality, that anger trumps facts. Yeah, and, and it, in the last couple of years, it's been particularly bad. It ramps up. That's always been there to some extent, but now it's become acceptable in a way that it wasn't. Just like political scandals have become tolerated in ways they, they weren't in the past. Remember Gary Hart? 
you know, Gary Hart couldn't run for president. Monkey right? business. He was found to be, you know, exactly. Do you remember, you know, when was it George W. Bush who looked at his watch and sighed during a debate and was like, wow, that's the end of him. Uh, yeah, Dan Quayle misspelled you know. potato. It was over. It's like, oh, right. my God, that's exactly. it? Exactly. It's like, well, that's it. Potato with an E. You're done. Yeah. Uh, but over time, what happens is if political elites decide that they're going to break norms and they finally can get away with doing that, they keep doing it. Because if you can get away with nonsense that you shouldn't, but it helps you, well, then you get away with it. Uh, and if the public becomes normalized to that, the public kind of gets used to it and says, yeah, okay, but, you know, that's just how it is, or it's not as bad as that guy. And then you get people stoking particular communities uh, and finding that, that things like that resonate with them. Well, now it's an asset. It's not just a potential liability that you avoid it. It's an asset. And so you build that community. You double down. You mobilize those folks. And then it's off to the races. Norms have broken. There's a decline. It's really hard to get that toothpaste back in the tube because people get used to it. They, get, they tolerate it. And social media, of course, and, so, and, and digital technologies don't help. So we've basically custom-built the worst of all possible mm. worlds for contemporary politics at the worst moment. Yeah. So good luck to us. You get, yeah, Not you get the government you want. Uh, I know, Tim, I know there's a conflict with Suma. I think you've done work in the past with Hockey Canada. If, if we're crossing any red lines, just let me know. But yep. I just, you know, because I know you love sports and, and we all do, Hockey Canada is right now in the hot seat. The president won't resign. They've paid $7.6 million from their, quote, equity fund uh, to settle sexual uh, abuse allegations. It has never been transparent. Sheldon Kennedy is going to join me yep. in about half an hour, and I just got a minute here. He's calling for everyone to resign can they reestablish credibility with this leadership team uh they can and it's not as simple as resigning but look what happened was terrible and abhorrent and i can tell you as also somebody like you minor hockey coach what they do at the grassroots level is very good they need to emulate that at the top and as a former head of a national sports organization massive cultural change happening all to say what happened in halifax or allegedly happened in halifax what happened in london wrong but i would just say this Scott Smith, the current president, Tom Rennie, uh, they made mistakes, but I know them to be people of integrity. It's going to come down to whether the board uh, will back them or thinks that new leadership uh, is necessary, because I do believe they're committed to change. Sheldon may or may not agree with that, and he needs to be a key voice in all of this, too. I just don't see how this team, no one's fired, no one's accountable, no one's suspended, and they just move on. I, I, I would be stunned. If the, the you know seven point six million dollars in nine settlements since nineteen eighty nine, no one's known about this. Come on, you know, all that's got to improve. Uh, and look, this is a major problem across the national sports organizations and with the government. Can't get through it all in a minute, but there's a lot of systemic change needs to happen. Sports orgs right. are way behind other organizations in addressing this. All right, uh, Tim Powers, David Moskrup, and uh, Zane Valji, gents, always a pleasure. Um, listen, step aside because. Um, Andre DeGrasse is coming through. Andre DeGrasse. That's okay. He's just a... When you guys go to the Olympics, call me, and then you'll be alone. <laughs> then you'll in, be alone. I'm in. Then you'll be, you, can't be, you can't just visit. Authentic voices. Real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. All right, welcome back, everybody. Well, it is always a pleasure to welcome to our program one of the greats, maybe the one of the greatest Canadian athletes in, in the world, Andre DeGrasse, 11-time world champion, Olympic medalist, and he led Canada to a gold medal in the men's uh, 4x100-meter relay at the World Track and Field Championships. 
And there was a national record there, so this was pretty remarkable. And joining us now is the man himself, Andre DeGrasse. How you doing? Hey, hey, I'm good. How you doing? 37.8 seconds. Tell me about... Like, the relay's exciting because anything can happen. There's, it's so crazy in there. Um, tell me about that race for gold. and Because and, I guess that's the first gold since 97. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, I was about, what, three years old when <laughs> the last time we won. So uh, it's definitely great to be a part of history. Um, you know, we... As a as a quartet, we've talked about that moment um, for the last couple of years. You know, saying that hey, you know, we're we're a strong team. We deserve to be here. Um, you know, we have a shot to to win this. You know, we've won bronze, we've won silver. So you know, we were really aiming for a gold medal this time around. Um, so it just feels really good. It feels really special to be a part of that 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 team. Um, you know, to represent the country and and to kind of you know do that you know close to home. Um, there was a lot of Canadian fans in the building. Um, in the stadium and um, you know it was just incredible to hear all the noises all the cheers and everyone was just so excited and and elated for us and uh, yeah I mean it it was just an awesome feeling for me so it's definitely a a great high uh, to especially to end my championship. Aaron Brown, Jerome Blake, uh, Brendan Rodney uh, and Andre DeGrasse who's on the line with us tell me about like people don't really like you do the 100 and the 200 we'll get to why you didn't run those in a second but but a relay is different like what is this particular strategy and skill that that on the outside we don't know like how hard it is to hand the baton off how do you get maximum speed because it seems like the precision of timing is just absolutely critical what is the hardest part about this race yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's very tough. It's very challenging. Um, you know, we always come together at least once or twice a year to practice it because anything can happen. I mean, in a relay, you could drop the baton, you leave late, uh, you 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 run away from your your um, your incoming runner. So it's really it's really technical. It's a really technical event, and um, for us, you know, we always have to like. You know, I feel like in the past, we've always played it safe, um, you know, with our marks so that we can end up in the finals and try to make the podium. But this time around, we we kind of took a little bit of a risk. You know, we uh, we extended our marks. We trusted each other and believed that, hey, you know, the incoming runner is going to catch us. We're going to call call out stick. Um, and, you know, oh, so, the, so, so the, explain the, what you mean. Sorry, Andre. Yeah. When you say extend your mark, that means like in the transition period, it's it's a longer. So you you're you're yeah. like the person handing the baton has to run a little farther and the other person's almost hitting peak speed lengthwise. Exactly. Yes. I mean, um, for, for us. So usually, for example, we might go um, 27 steps you know, from, from the relay exchange zone, you know, this time we might've did 29. We might have, we extended that mark to say, Hey, you know, we want to get, try to get the baton later in the zone, like towards the middle and towards the end of the zone. So that, so the outgoing runner can get a good proper acceleration. Wow. Um, so for and what's us, the danger is the danger that the, their other runners a little tired and it's going to slow down. Yeah, that's that, <laughs> that is a big danger. I mean, Hey, like that, you know the the incoming the sorry the, the runner coming in to the to the outgoing runner um, might not catch them. So we're you know it's all it's always a risk. It's always dangerous like that. You say hey, are you gonna are you gonna catch me? But then you know the outgoing runner has to say or sorry the incoming runner has to say just believe me, just trust me. I'm going to catch you. And when I call when I call you know call your name or call stick, you know 
I'm, I'm going to, you know, hand you that the, baton. That's right what you position, call. So. so the moment is you put your hand back. Like if you're running, you're the outgoing. And Andre DeGrasse, you're, you've got your hand out. Someone calls stick. You're not looking back. They're just going to lay it in your hand. Is that what happens? Exactly. Just trust that. The trust that that runner is going to lay it in your hand. Exactly. Christmas. So for us, that was a big. That was a big. It was a big trust, you know, because you know our coach is always, you know, Glenroy. He's always very conservative, and you know he wants to just make sure that we get the stick, you know, as quickly as possible. But we felt like you know we had to you know extend that zone in order for us to win to have a chance to win. Mm. Because every time we've kind of played it safe, we've got bronze or silver. And so we wanted to switch it up. We had to try something new, you know, because, you know, we wanted to go for that gold medal. And uh, it actually it worked out in our benefit this time around. So we're super grateful and super happy for that, for that moment. Oh, it was awesome. Now, when you get the stick, when you get the baton under the grass and, and you're running the anchor leg, or, and, and, and I guess the Americans are your big competition at that point, right? The, the, the silver medalist is there beside you. You're cranky. Are you... Uh, paying attention to them or do you just run your race or do you think holy mac and i gotta pick it up they're the americans they're the brits or something <laughs> good question good question um but no i mean you gotta just have to focus on your on your own race um you know you can't worry about what everybody else is doing around you um you know that's when things can go bad um when you're focusing on the other lane so you want to just make sure that you you're you're focused on hey you know there's the tape you see the in, the, out, the incoming runner um hit the line hit the tape and you just go and and then once they call you you reach your hand back and and you move so um for us that's what we you know we have to try to just focus on we didn't worry about hey what the other what the other runners are doing um, you know, just worrying about us, worrying about our own lane and just trying to just stay in our own lane, basically. It's so great. Um, just one last thing on this. Um, now, you didn't run the 100 and 200 because of COVID. Is that right? So why why choose this race and not one of those? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was going to be really tough. I mean, I didn't have a good um, a good last three weeks of training because of because of having having COVID. So it was going to be really tough to like actually, you know, run three races and get to the finals and get on the podium um, at my best, you know, like you can't be 70% and everyone else is, you know, a hundred percent. So right. it's going to be really tough to, to, to win. So I knew, you know, going in that, Hey, you know, I had a, I had a week to rest um, about five or six days going into the relay. So I think just the extra rest, kind of helped me you know as you you know kind of get over get over all the symptoms and everything so um you know i knew like hey i didn't have to like do as much i'm only running about about 80 so i think it's about 85 to 90 meters once i get the baton so it's not like a full a full race world listen that's andre degrasse at 70 to 80 percent he's got a goal so look out <laughs> um now here's the thing so my wife is a vegetarian she like she eats fish but not meat so she's always on the lookout for good food and so like of course you know we're all trying to emulate andre degrasse i hear now you're <laughs> supporting something called cheese made by Tristella. so this is like a cheese alternative it's like a meat alternative, but it's made of cheese. Like what? Because I'm trying. She's like, oh, I'm so sick of the veggie meat or something. So what is this thing? This is like a meat burger made <laughs> out of cheese or isn't that a cheese burger? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically it's, it's a chickenless burger and, and nuggets. Um, you know, it's it's different. Uh, it's something that's never that's never happened before. It's the first time ever that, you know, Trey Stella um, is um, is doing this. Um, you know, it's 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 you can buy it in the grocery store it's really good um you could just it's quick and easy and simple you just put it in the oven 
so it's something that's very nutritious that I enjoy, uh, you know, especially for my training. You know, it's a great, good source of protein and calcium. So definitely helps me towards my goals, um, you know, when I'm on the track. And then, of course, you know, just being able to kind of feed that to my kids as well. You know, it's a good it's good when I, when I come home from from um, from practice and I'm tired and it's something that, hey, like, you know, what am I what am I going to what am I going to eat or what am my kids going to eat? And I could just, you know, hmm. quickly just, you know, quickly make it and they love it. You know, cheese, they, you know, yeah, so, meat alternative. And, it's made, and it's made out of cheese. So it's, made it's, definitely, out of cheese. it's different. <laughs> All right, man. Cheese made the meat alternative. And Andre DeGrasse is powered by a bit of cheese made. Sure. Hey, man, listen, can I just say, first of all, thanks for doing this. Uh, you're just such a great guy and an inspiration. Congrats to you and the whole team. I know it takes not just the other runners, but the coaches and the trainers. Uh, keep inspiring. I, I hope your health returns 100% and just keep on inspiring us, Andre. Thanks, and, and great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's Andre DeGrasse. We will be right back. Where accountability is key. This is Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Can you trust Hockey Canada? They are getting scrutinized by politicians today. Why? Because they've done so little to protect the very kids, the young people that play there under the auspices of Hockey Canada. And now it's been revealed today, shockingly, that they paid out $7.6 million in nine settlements to, since 1989 from the so-called equity fund, most of it going to the uh, victims of Graham James. And, but they're not going to resign. And, and then when, and when asked, what about these, uh, the, when you first heard about allegations of sexual abuse, for the 2018 junior team? Oh, yeah, we did that in camera. There are no notes on that. How convenient. Well, somebody who knows this file sadly better than anyone, who's done more to bring awareness up about sexual abuse and, and, and making sure sports are safe is Sheldon Kennedy, the former NHL player, the victim's right ad- advocate, a victim himself of Graham James. And Sheldon, it is an honor to have you here. And I saw your tweet. I read it at the beginning of the show. Enough is enough. Um, do you trust Hockey Canada that they can implement changes, Sheldon? Well, I don't, uh, Evan. I mean, you know, I think there's a huge disconnect here. I think that you were, you know, when we talk about Hockey Canada, I think sometimes we lump all Hockey Canada into all hockey organizations across this country. Now, you know, we've been working, we've uh, had partnerships within hockey organizations for, for 14 years, and people think that the respect in sport training or any other training you know, dating back to 1997 was mandated by Hockey Canada, and it wasn't. Right? This is the these this effort has been been has been um, delivered by your local branches and your member partners in your organizations uh, that you sign up for hockey with. So, you know, Hockey Canada has never taken a leadership role there. And to me, if you look at just the history, I mean, you know, both you and I have probably had these conversations once a year on a case. For the past 26 years you and i and, have spoken that long 
It's, we have. Sheldon, you and I have I spoken. I'm, my kids are already through hockey. I coached, yeah. and then you and I are still having these bloody conversations. I know. And so, so to see, like, and the thing that bothered me, and, and, you know, and I was sitting back, Evan, and I, and in my gut, I thought, you know what? I want to see how they react. And I feel that sometimes if people are put and they've, they've been in there, you know, they've been rocked that sometimes, you know what, if they, if they, if they gut honest, uh, own it, that they may be able to be the best to bring, uh, you know, not only themselves, but the organization through this. And I think that was kind of given that, uh, given that a little bit of hope because I know the people at hockey Canada, I've been working in that space for, you know, 26 years, I know them well. And I felt that just the lack of empathy, but I think most importantly, I think the lack of, um, the lack of knowledge and I guess, uh, compassion for, for, I think the impact of these incidences, I think there's just this cookie cutter approach to check the boxes around compliance, um, to get, you know, to, to get, move on, move on here. And, that's the, what I felt. And, and I think I had a, it wasn't resting well with me, uh, Evan, and, and I needed to say something. And I felt the only way that we're going to, you know, move forward here is here it is again. And I was hoping it was going to be something different, but again, it's the same players with a new plan expecting a different result. And, and I couldn't put it any other way. That's the way I have to process stuff, keep it simple. But I think for us to get the change that I think we all want in a systemic culture and a systemic system we have to change the leadership that are you know because we can have all the training programs we want right that we want in the in the grassroots hockey we can do all these great initiatives local initiatives but if it's not believed in and and put in the priority column of the leadership group in that organization the change is never going to have the impact that is desired mm. from the tools that we're trying to implement at the local level. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm speaking to Sheldon Kennedy. Um, I just don't know how, what, what do they expect? Oh yeah, we'll give you the money now. You'll do it after not doing it. No one believes that, as you say. What, what did you make of the fact that they, no one took notes when they had in-camera meetings about sexual assault allegations? There's no evidence. Well, we don't know anything about it. What do we make of the fact that we never heard that they had an equity fund that was paying out millions and millions of dollars? There's still a million dollars paid to out related to, to allegations of sexual abuse from one perpetrator and four victims, and we have no idea of it. There's literally no transparency here, Sheldon. Well, I think that's the problem, and I think I think part of it is, uh, Evan, is that you know it's it is it's the way that that system has worked for generations and generations and generations, and and I feel that you know the people leading uh, the ship today and back then, um, there's a lot of the same faces. I mean, recently stepped down, but um, a lot of the same faces were there for my case that are here for this case. So. Yeah. To me, I think it became par for the course of how they dealt with these issues. And I know that the, the strategy was don't say anything, keep it quiet, move on. And I think, you know, what we've learned, and I think we've learned this, the NHL learned it in the Kyle Beach case. We as a society have educated ourselves in this space over what I know anyway, 26 years and beyond, I'm sure. But, I mean, we've really moved 
uh, our knowledge around these issues in a positive way, in a in a forward uh, way for the last you know couple generations, and we expect more. And I think that hockey has been in, you know, hockey Canada has been in this bubble that they haven't been able to see outside of that bubble, which has left them behind in this space. And I think ultimately that's what we're seeing is that we are seeing an archaic response to a human issue in today's day and age. And people expect more. We demand more. Mm. And I mean, you know what's sad? What's sad? I feel I shouldn't even have had to send out my tweet yesterday. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's get by the way, it was mentioned today multiple times by at the hearings on in Parliament today uh, to Hockey Canada. Your voice is so consequential. They're not stepping down. They refuse. And I can tell you, I do not know if the government of Canada should start the money taps. And I know I got about 30 seconds here, Sheldon. I just don't think unless there's a change in that organization, they could turn the taps back on. Well, I mean, I agree. I, I think that, you know, whether it's sponsorship, whether it's Sport Canada, I mean, I think that uh, there has to be more than lip service. Uh, I feel that's what we have in front of us today. And, you know, I mean, anybody else that I've seen, any other organization that have had a crisis like this, you know, on day two, the CEO is stepping down. Listen, in hockey, on a significantly less important issue, when you're on a losing streak, you change the manager, you change the coach, you change, mm. you trade a player. Hockey Canada has been on. This is a constant. This is so much more consequential. Nobody's been fired. No one's been suspended. No accountability. Sheldon Kennedy, uh, listen, man, come back uh, if you want to come back. And you know there's a platform here for you, Sheldon, anytime, brother. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Thanks again. You've been busy today, and, and your voice matters. Thanks. Sheldon Kennedy, keep up the great work, sir. Uh, just respect for Sheldon Kennedy, a Canadian former NHL player, victim's rights advocate. He's done more positive things to raise awareness. And Sheldon saying enough is enough. Change the leadership. Now, that's a voice. That's a voice you listen to. All right, thanks for listening, folks. I'll see you again tomorrow.